You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this week's podcast, can you maintain Marx's theory of exploitation without his theory of value? Can you make Marx safe for social democracy? We'll be talking about a recent paper Andrew has written, further developing his criticism of Ben Burgess's theory of exploitation. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be defending Marx's theory of exploitation from his social democratic critics. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on September 20th. We're going to be talking about recent developments in the war in Ukraine, possible changes and the opposition to uh, Putin's war in Ukraine, and what this may mean for the future of the conflict. In past weeks, the Ukrainian forces have scored surprisingly successful victories pushing back Russian troops from large parts of Ukraine. The reports are that Russian troops are quite demoralized. They've suffered heavy casualties and losses of lots of equipment. And, and we're starting to see signs, public signs, of dissent against the war and against Putin. Uh, in Russia, which is surprising given the fact that referring to the conflict as a war and criticizing the so-called military operation is a crime. How many people have been arrested now for criticizing the war? I think it's 16,000. 16,000 people. Yeah, I think I I read that. It's a lot of people. So any dissent is surprising, but we've seen in recent weeks quite a bit of dissent. There was a widely reported exchange on Russian state television. One of the commentators came out against the war and called it a failure. There's a, there's the opening of a real debate, and the people who are trying to defend the Putin stuff are, are having a hard time because it ain't going well. There were calls put out by Russian lawmakers in both St. Petersburg and Moscow in recent weeks calling for Putin to be removed, charged with treason, and to end the war in Ukraine, which is quite a risky move uh, for lawmakers to take in a country which has very little tolerance for dissent. So the fact that things have gotten bad enough that this was a even a political possibility is quite striking. Things must really be stirred up in Russia. And we have to assume that public sentiment about the war has really shifted and people are becoming increasingly discontent and uneasy about what's going on in Ukraine for not necessarily all for the same reasons, but it's clearly a a major failure on Putin's part. Yeah, it's shifted away from the Putin line in two opposite directions. There's the Democrats' criticism and then there's the, the far right, the nationalists and the Communist Party. What the latter nationalist and communist party are doing in light of these defeats is saying well what we got to do is escalate the war and some of them are even calling like okay the, the hell with this this crap we got to go to kiev and western ukraine and liberate them some of the, these people are even calling openly for use of nuclear weapons but then there's what everybody is treating as, as the big news which was just two days ago, which is the gigantic pop star singer in Russia, 
Ala uh, Pugachova, who has always been apolitical. I mean, she's 73 years old. She's got a very, very long career dating back to the USSR, and she, she's never been political. But on Sunday, she puts out a post on uh, Instagram, and she says, Russian soldiers are dying for illusory goals. Russia's actions have made it, you know, a pariah internationally. And she asked that she be put on the list of people who are foreign agents in Russia, which is like the first step of next you're going to be jailed and, you know, or exiled, something like that. So she wanted to be designated as a foreign agent because her husband, who is a comedian, has been designated as a foreign agent. He is now in exile uh, in Israel. You know, because it's on Instagram and because her following includes a lot of older people and that's the core of Putin's support, people are going to see this. Everybody seems to be talking about this and so it's made a very big dent. And what I read, I don't know this for sure, is that you can see the impact that it has had or will have by the extent of the reaction among the Putin people to what she said. There, there has been a big reaction. I'm very curious about how average Russians perceive or understand the war because there's so much censorship and propaganda around the war. But at the same time, you know, the body bags are coming home and there is somewhat of you know, internet access in, to some degree and all sorts of messaging apps and ways to get around censorship. And so I'm, I'm curious about what, how well they can form like a real, realistic picture of what's going on there. Yeah, people experience it even if they aren't getting accurate reporting about the, the goings-on in the war because the sanctions are working. What somebody said, quoted in an article in Business Insider, he declined to give his full name for obvious reasons, Maxime, he said, some of my friends have lost their jobs. Okay, and that's because, like, you know, there are shortages of, of supplies and, you know, certain things can't be produced because of that. So some of my friends have lost their jobs and everyone is tightening their belts. Any mobilization, in other words, any escalation of the war, any calling up of, you know, civilians or something, any mobilization would be the tipping point because nobody here wants to fight the stupid war apart from the raving nationalists. Yeah, in addition to losing lots of territory, uh, apparently morale is just awful amongst the Russian troops. They've lost lots of troops, tons of injuries, and been cut off from supplies and starvation, and some of their best units have been decimated. So there's, there's lots of reports of demoralization. They've lost, through injury or death, an estimated uh, number of troops, 80,000. It's incredible. Their, their total troop size was, what, about double that at the start of the war. You can't, you can't keep fighting like that. And they're recruiting now from, like, prisons in Russia. They're offering, offering people... Get out of jail free card if you fight for six months straight, and, you know, you do absolutely everything you're told, and if you look the other way and want to run away, you'll just be shot on sight. <laughs> Take it or leave it, yeah. This is who's fighting. So they're not, like, trained soldiers. They don't have any, like... Well, here's... ...cause or esprit de corps. They're just, like, platoons of rapists and murderers and whatever that they're like or at least they're trying to recruit prisoners we we don't know at least i don't know whether it's right, working. right yeah i read some article that claimed that they were offering the prisoners you know if you come and fight in the war well if you die we'll 
give you a nice coffin and, and send you home to be, to be buried in your hometown. Uh, there's an offer you can't refuse, right? And it, it's just a sign of desperation. Yeah, and it's also a sign of how ill-prepared Putin was for the realities of this war, the realities of the Ukrainian people. I mean, he was telling everybody in Russia that they were going to take over the country and be home in time for dinner. And, you know, now he's trying to blame the West as if it's just like Western, you know, a proxy battle. It's, that's uh, the reason Russia's uh, failing. But, you know, the Ukrainians were making astonishing uh, moves, repelling Russian troops from the very beginning of the war, before all the, the war, you know, aid started pouring in from the West. He was entirely unprepared for the reality that Ukrainians would fight to the end to not be dominated by Russia. And he wasn't prepared for the idea that he might have to actually recruit a larger army and answer politically for starting a long quagmire for war in uh, uh, Ukraine. You know, when an autocrat isolates themselves from reality, surrounds themselves with yes men who are afraid of criticizing the great leader, then you end up with these sort of uh, situations where all sorts of miscalculations, bad information, bad strategies just kind of spell disaster for these kind of operations. And this is not a unique thing in Russian military operations. Even going back to like Stalin, Stalin had like the same problems. He was like, had this kind of I alone can fix it mentality, wanted to dictate strategy to his generals, didn't want any criticism, didn't want to hear other opinions. And it led to all sorts of disasters and untold casualties in World War II. Right. And it's not a psychological problem, either on, on Stalin's part or Putin's part. This is the way a repressive authoritarian regime works in this very centralized, top-down manner. It has to work that way. This is what you get. <laughs> well, regular li- listeners will know that we've spent a fair amount of time criticizing the Chomskyites with their pseudo-anti-imperialism, the people from the so-called peace movement, and other groups that have been throwing the Ukrainians under the bus and their uh, attempt to like paint this whole thing as just a case of U.S. aggression, urging the Ukraine, Ukrainians to like settle on any terms to let themselves be dominated by Putin. The events on the ground really seem to be proving the problem with this kind of analysis. Yet, you know, you can still hear echoes of all that sentiment still in a lot of these people. I just read a recent interview with Chomsky from not that long ago. I think it was in August in Truthout magazine. He's still peddling all the same points about Ukraine. The only change is that he knows now to say up front, top of the article, I condemn Putin's illegal, immoral invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, it's like his get out of jail free card, but then he can spend the rest of the article talking about Western aggression, blah, blah, blah. Biden should have known he was poking hornet's nest, blah, blah, blah. NATO expansion, blah, blah, blah. Cold War, U.S. propaganda. People in the U.S. never know the whole truth because of all the propaganda and the media. All this, all the same garbage. It's all the same stuff. It's a really glaring example of whataboutism, you know. That kind of deflection where you start off with, with talking about, uh, oh, I really condemn this, and then you go, well, what, what about like, what these people did, and so forth and so on. Ugh, God. Well, I'm sure we will talk about this more in the future. Up next, our conversation about value exploitation, Ben Burgess, G.A. Cohen, etc., 
Well, we're recording this on September 18th, and we're going to be talking once again about exploitation, Karl Marx, Ben Burgess, and G.A. Cohen. Regular listeners will know that we had a double episode a while back, a debate with Ben Burgess, popular Jacobin commentator and podcaster, etc., a left philosopher, um, about the relevance of Marx's theory of exploitation and whether one can, as Ben Burgess advocates, jettison value theory and still maintain a core claim about workers being exploited in capitalism. So, Andrew, you have just published a piece which is responding to elements of that debate with Burgess, but also a further piece that Burgess has written on the topic since that debate, right? Uh, Your piece is called Karl Marx Systematically Exploited by Ben Burgess. And the two pieces by Burgess that your piece is discussing is a piece in Medium called Marx's Theory of Exploitation, and then a, a newer piece in Jacobin from a few months ago called Karl Marx Was Right, Workers Are Systematically Exploited Under Capitalism. And just as our podcast also discussed a lot G.A. Cohen's piece, The Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation, so too does this new piece by you discuss Cohen's piece. Burgess's reformulation of Marx's theory of exploitation relies heavily on G.A. Cohen's work. Whether or not he gets Cohen's argument correct or understands it is a different question, but it's the basis for the perspective that he's trying to put forward. So let's start at the beginning. You say in your paper, uh, Andrew, that Karl Marx is systematically exploited by Ben Burgess, which obviously is a humorous way of putting the argument, but uh, tell our, our listeners why you formulate the question this way. Well, I did it to be humorous, <laughs> right? He says, uh, Karl Marx was right, workers are systematically exploited under capitalism. And since he's exploiting Karl Marx, I say, well, okay, he, Karl Marx is systematically exploited by Ben Burgess. But the real point underlying this is that there's a, a process of exploitation going on. It's not capitalist exploitation, it's not the extraction of surplus labor, it's not the creation of surplus value, but it's exploitation. It's taking advantage of somebody. What Burgess is trying to do, which I think is taking advantage of Marx, is to appropriate the name Marx and appropriate just the bare term exploitation and attach it to Burgess's or Burgess Cohen's own different theory. And, you know, that works because of the abiding cachet surrounding Marx's name and legacy. It's so much cooler to say, you know, I'm the inheritor of Marx, and this is what he really meant to say, rather than I have a different theory. So, actually, I liken the the, the whole kind of strategy of Burgess and many other people. I say, you know, this is so much like cultural appropriation, which is when, you know, one group exploits another's culture by taking isolated bits of it and using it for their own purposes. We got the same thing going on, theoretical appropriation. It's not cultural groups, it's intellectual groups, but the, the, the process is still the same. They take bits of stuff, they detach the stuff from the overall context, they rework it to su- suit their own purposes. It's very much like cultural appropriation, which is really the the exploiting, the taking advantage of somebody else's culture. Here, they're taking advantage of somebody else's uh, theory. Uh, Yeah, and if you read any Ben Burgess article, there's always this reference to, 
you know, he's always saying things like the Marxist argument is, or Marxists say this, uh, which is part of that total tendency in the Jacobin um, Mayu to appropriate the, like you say, the cachet of Marx. They say the Marxist argument is this, Marx says this, and they just insert whatever they want to say without any responsible attempt to actually present Marx's own ideas. But somehow it's part of the performative leftism uh, where they want to present like FDR New Deal politics as Marxism, as like this is what the far left really wants is uh, Bernie Sanders and income redistribution. And by packaging Marx as presenting these ideas, then they sort of take the wind out of any concept that there can be anything left of that. But they're also what I call they're making Marx safe for social democracy. That's the real point is Marx had uh, an exploitation theory of profit. The real point was to explain where the surplus value is coming from. The secret of profit making has at last been laid bare, Marx says, you know, in Capital. That's what he was trying to do. And he puts forward an argument and says, ah, the surplus value is attributable to the exploitation of the worker. So the exploitation is part of a theory that it's not just meant to say the workers exploited. <laughs> okay, it's part of this overall theory, and that's in an overall you know framework and larger philosophic and economic and political context. And it's it's actually the political implications of what Marx is saying are nothing at all like what these people are saying, which is that we need a more just or fair distribution of income. I mean, Marx was like totally like livid that the Gotha program kind of made the principal stress on distribution rather than the character of the mode of production and the fact that labor power is a commodity and the workers have no means of production of their own, etc., etc. This all gets just shoved aside. You get Marx's name, you get the word exploitation, and it gets attached to a theory of income distribution currently is, is unfair. Well, let's get into some of the meat of how Burgess does this with the theory of exploitation. So one of the things that Burgess does is that he is trying to frame this theory of exploitation in a way that sounds like intuitively reasonable to people on the left, right? So he says, quote, workers are forced to give up part of the product of their labor that isn't under their control. And probably a lot of people on the left would think that sounds like in a reasonable approximation of Marxist theory of exploitation. So what is your critique of that? Well, first of all, the new article he wrote is chock full of this word control, workers control part, the capitalists control the other part, control, control, control. This kind of appeared from out of nowhere. You know, he used to speak like everybody speaks of ownership. And what's this control stuff doing? I don't entirely know, but I asked myself, what, what does he mean by control? Well, how do capitalists control any of the product? They don't steal it. They don't occupy their own factories, you know, to control the product. They don't hold the products, uh, you know, at gunpoint. They don't brainwash the products and control their minds, right? Capitalist control of the products is ownership of the products. So. Burgess, for whatever reason, starts talking about control, but it, it reduces to ownership. Okay, but I, I spend actually a whole lot of time deconstructing this this claim that workers are forced to give up the part of the product of their labor that isn't under their control, you know, or, or ownership. Well, actually, the simple facts are none of the product of the labor is under the control of the workers. None of it is owned by the workers ever. It's the property of the capitalist. 
workers are hired. They don't have any property rights to any of the product. They're they're paid wages, you know, for coming into work or maybe pay piece wages, they're, but they don't get a share of the product. So none of the product is ever at any time under their control. It's under the exclusive control and ownership of the capitalist business. And as a result, it's just not true that workers are forced to give up any part of the product. It never belonged to them in the first place. Those are like the simple facts and like kind of everybody knows this. That's how simple they are. And Burgess, I, I don't know why he's actually going this route, but if he were to think about the matter for a few seconds, he would see, I, I think, how dicey it is. In any case, I mean, once you understand that the workers never control any of the product, no matter what happens, you know, in the workplace under capitalism, you can see that exploitation is not synonymous with workers not controlling a part of the product. I mean, let's say you think of like Marx's theory. Well, workers never control any of the product. I mean, I, and I spent some time in the paper showing that, that Marx recognized quite clearly the facts. The entire product belongs to the capitalists. The workers, they sell their labor power as a commodity. They've got no interest in the product. They don't get a share of the product. You know, Marx recognized all of that. But under Marx's theory, what you get is there's new value created in production by workers, and there is the sum of value they're paid, and they are exploited if and insofar as the amount of new value they create exceeds the uh, amount of value that they're paid. So you could conceivably, logically, not in reality, but it's logically possible then to have the capitalists controlling all the products as they do, you know, dominating the workers, owning everything, Yet, it's logically possible for there not to be exploitation if these capitalists who own, dominate, and control were to pay the workers an amount equal to the entire new value that the workers create. So it's very obvious when you look at Marx's theory that the question of who owns, who controls, etc., and the issue of are the workers exploited, those are different questions. It's very obvious. The takeaway, I guess, from that is just that Control is different from exploitation. Control is obviously necessary for exploitation, right? But it's, a, it's like a precondition, but it's not the same as. And as we'll probably get to, that distinction is like really crucial for Marx's claim that workers are exploited, as we'll get to. That if you just rely on control, you can't actually make much of a theory of exploitation based on that. Right. And, and I actually talk about that in my paper as well. I say, let's look at what happens to Burgess's new stuff about control, 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 once we recognize the capitalists control everything. Well, basically, he, he doesn't have anything then that he can ever say about exploitation in relationship to the dynamics of class struggle. You get struggles for the shorter working day are successful. Does that reduce the amount of exploitation? No, well, the capitalists controlled the whole product before, they control the whole product afterwards. You know, workers get higher pay. Okay, does that reduce the, the, the amount of exploitation? No, the capitalists still control the whole product 
just like they did before. So if you take this idea of control of the product seriously, more seriously than, than Burgess does, it, it just doesn't respond to what's actually going on in the ground in terms of changes in pay, changes in working time, uh, and so forth. There are a lot of insights into capitalism and the way it works, relative surplus value, absolute surplus value, domination of labor by machines, all sorts of those social dynamics that aren't really captured by a theory of exploitation that just relies on control. Yeah, I think that that's completely right. And here's why. Control is an invariable condition of capitalism. The the fact that the capitalists own control of the whole product that is a constant within capitalism. It never varies. So if that's your idea of exploitation, you got the same exploitation, you know, and the same degree of exploitation, come what may. All you can do is say barely the capitalists exploit workers, but you can't take it any further. So when Burgess was on our guest on the podcast a while back, his thinking about exploitation was based on G.A. Cohen's essay written 40 years ago. Cohen in that essay put forward what he called a plain argument, P-L-A-I-N, plain argument, that capitalists exploited workers. And he stressed that the plain argument differed from Marxist exploitation theory, since it says nothing about workers' labor creating value and surplus value. Cohen said, like, I have a plain argument that is basically the theory of exploitation, a, a theory which you know resonates with like the common sense of socialists about workers being exploited, but doesn't rely on Marx's actual argument about surplus value and doesn't talk about creation of value at all. Burgess was endorsing Cohen's argument in his, the, the, the piece we discussed in the podcast. And this more recent Jacobin piece, has anything changed? Um, is he still endorsing Cohen's argument? Right. In his first article, you know, this endorsement of uh, Cohen's plain argument on the podcast, he was endorsing it and defending it. And he still seems to be doing so in his latest article. Here's, here's what Burgess says. As the Marxist philosopher G.A. Cohen demonstrated, Marx's core insight about exploitation could be reformulated in an even simpler way. You know, plain argument. If you drop his 19th century assumptions about value and prices, the key point is that workers are the source of the products that have value and capitalism systematically forces them to surrender some of that value to the boss. So as far as I can tell, it's the same thing, although I have a suspicion about why Burgess is so strongly stressing control of the product. I think I may have made a point that he realizes that he can't answer concerning, you remember this, G.A. Cohen's definition of exploitation, which was a question of the amount that somebody contributes versus the amount that they receive, obtaining something without giving something in return. The new formulation by Burgess doesn't get to that issue, so I think he's like, I gotta get away from this idea that exploitation is a matter of a lack of reciprocity, of, of obtaining something without giving something in return. Because uh, he can't, I, th- I think he realizes he can't handle that. But this, that's only a suspicion. Hey, the, the short answer is, yeah, he's he's still all in with uh, Bert, uh, with Cohen. But you don't think that his argument is actually the same as Cohen's argument? Oh no, I mean Cohen said nothing about the workers being exploited by virtue of the fact that the capitalists control part of the product. He says very clearly the plain argument. It's not Cohen's actual own opinion. 
he didn't give his actual opinion, but he says, what your garden variety Marxist believes is not that fancy schmancy, you know, value theory crap. What the plain garden variety Marxist thinks is that the laborer is exploited by the capitalist because the, the worker produces the whole product and the capitalist only gives them part of the product. But he's not talking about the value of the product, he's talking about the physical products. The physical product. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the workers produce the product, the product has a value, we don't have to worry about where the value comes from, but by virtue of, of the, the worker producing the product, there's this value, and their, the workers are exploited because they don't get the whole value. So they give something and they, they don't obtain the equivalent in return. That, that was Cohen's argument, not the, the capitalists control the product and <laughs> that the workers have produced. No, no, no. That, he didn't say something that stupid. I mean, it's not, it's not that it's false. It's just kind of off point in terms of exploitation. So in that same essay by G.A. Cohen, before he presents the plain argument, he sets out to demolish Marx's own exploitation theory. And you discussed that in your paper. What is Cohen's argument about What's wrong with Marx's theory of exploitation? Yeah, this is something that I'm able in the new article to explain much more simply, and I think in a better way, not only clearer, but also more correct than I was able to on the podcast last year. Basically, what Cohen says is there's two doctrines in Marx. There's the strict labor theory of value doctrine, which says that a commodity's current value does not depend on the amount of time it took to produce it in the past, but the amount of time, labor time, it takes to produce it currently. And that's, you know, what Marx's theory says. Then Cohen says, ah, but there's a logical contradiction here, because Marx's exploitation theory relies on this notion that labor creates value. And the popular version that labor creates value, according to Cohen, contradicts the idea that the past amount of labor it took to produce something uh, is irrelevant to its current value. Basically, he's saying that, look, if I spent 10 hours making something uh, a couple weeks ago, so it has 10 hours of uh, value, but then there's new technology this week, and it only takes five hours to make. Well, you know, the socially necessary labor time is five hours. But if we say labor creates the value, that seems to be in conflict with the idea that socially necessary labor time determines the value. When I read that in the Cohen, I thought, well, I don't really see the conflict there. That doesn't seem like two contradictory ideas to me. But I, I didn't immediately know how I would articulate that, like if I actually had to debate Cohen or something on this point. Yeah, I, I, I did too. I did too. It took me a long time to work that out. Yeah, I think you did a good job on that point. It was like something that intuitively made sense, but sometimes working out explicitly something that seems intuitive is uh, harder than it seems. Yeah, let me put it very simply. Cohen has conflated two different things. He doesn't see the distinction between the determination of a commodity's value and the creation of value. He says the, the, the value is determined by current conditions, therefore it's not created by what happened in the past. No, it's both. It's two mints in one. The value is of the commodity is determined by the amount of labor it takes to produce it currently, and when it was produced, its value was created by the labor that produced it. There's no, there's no contradiction. Det 
determination of value is one thing, creation of value is a different thing. Except for the, the, the original determination of value depends on the creation of value. So it's when the value is created, that's when the value of the commodity is originally determined. But after that, after that point, revalued again and again and again and again uh, for as long as the commodity is in existence. So you got the production of the product, the commodity, that's creation of value. That's where there's the original determination of the value, but the value changes. The commodity gets revalued, 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 revalued. So creation of value once and for all, and a continuing, you know, kind of unending series of revaluations and the determination of the commodity's value by current conditions. Okay, but the point is this, beyond all of that, there, there's, there's no conflict between those two notions. But Cohen gives this impression that Marx is trying to like hoodwink people by talking about labor creating value because he needs it for his exploitation theory, even though the strict theory, you know, says something contradictory to that. No, no, no. The fact is, when you talk about the exploitation and you say, like Marx says, well, the exploitation takes place in the process of production and the surplus value profit is created in the production process, what we are talking about is at that original moment when the product is created. The, the subsequent revaluations of the commodity have absolutely nothing to do with that. Hmm, right. This was just an arg argument for, for Cohen to like want people to jettison the value theory. He wanted to get him to say, what well, you people think you like Marx's you know, theory of exploitation, but you really don't. What you really like is this plain argument that has nothing to do with workers creating value. But what he had to do to soften them up, you know, so they would be receptive to just chuck out Marx's stuff and embrace this plain argument that you've really believed all along, to soften up the audience, he had to try to demolish Marx's own theory so that, oh my God, you know, you'd have to have an alternative and, you know, there was his alternative in the same paper. Burgess, in his most recent piece, provides another critique of Marx's uh, value theory to suggest that we can jettison it and don't need it. What is, uh, what's his argument? It, it's kind of silly, but I'll, I'll just kind of like go through it. He, he writes, uh, as economist and Jacobin contributing editor Mike Beggs notes, economists today think in terms of supply and demand schedules rather than supply and demand as forces operating on commodities which makes Marx's argument that something must account for prices when these forces are in balance much less compelling. So the, the idea is Marx made a valid criticism of supply and demand theory and offered his own stuff as an alternative, but his argument against that stuff is not compelling anymore because economists think in terms of supply and demand schedules. There's a real point underlying this. Maybe Beggs made the point correctly, I don't know. But Burgess doesn't understand the, the, the real point. And the real point does not make Marx's argument less compelling. The point isn't that economists today think in terms of supply and demand schedules, which are just lists of this price, that's the amount supplied, that's the amount demanded, that price plus a penny, different amount supplied, different amount demanded, that price in two pennies, supply, that demand. Okay, that's that's all a supply schedule is or demand schedule is. The, the point is not that they think in terms of supply and demand schedules. The point is that economists today accept what Marx said. They accept that something must account for prices when the quantities supplied and demanded are in balance. 
Okay, so the, the fact that like more is supplied than is demanded, so price goes down. More is demanded than supplied, so price goes up. That just explains the ups and downs in prices. It doesn't explain what the prices are going to be when supply and demand are in balance. You know, if supply and demand are in balance, why does a banana sell for much less than a car? Supply and demand driving prices up and down doesn't explain that. That was Marx's point. It was a valid point. It's still a valid point. And the difference is economists today recognize that. The point is not that they have supply and demand schedules, but that their supply and demand schedules change whenever anything that accounts for prices in equilibrium changes. So when any influence on supply or demand or both, any factor that influences supply or demand or both, when it changes, it causes supply to change or demand to change or both. And therefore, it causes the uh, goods equilibrium price to change. Okay, so the economists today have taken on board Marx's point that supply and demand just that doesn't explain prices. What explains prices are the things that make supply move and that make demand move. So rather than this making Marx's stuff much less compelling, it just confirms that like his the compelling character of his point is now universally recognized. First of all, and secondly. The factors that mainstream economists say cause supply to change, cause demand to change, well, among those factors are the factors that Marx said here are the determinants of value. And other factors that they say cause supply and demand to change are factors that Marx understood as additional causes of movements in goods prices. So there, there might be some respect in which mainstream economics uh, actually contradicts Marx's uh, value theory, but there's nothing in modern supply and demand analysis as such that contradicts it. I'm not saying that, you know, the, the, the mainstream economics is the same as Marx, that there's no big differences between the theory. There are huge differences between the theories, but most, or at least a very large portion of differences between theories are not contradictions between them. This one says A, the other one says not A. Most differences between theories are just like a plain different focus or, you know, what people like Thomas Kuhn and Paul Feyerabend called incommensurability. You can't even compare the two theories because there's so much, you know, kind of like on different wavelengths. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing 
relinquishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. In our our last podcast, Andrew, you pretty strongly made a case for the argument that Cohen's plain argument is logically invalid. Could you recap that argument, but maybe first even give us an argument for why it matters, why people should care whether the plain argument is or isn't logically valid? It, it, it can sound intuitively appealing and has a certain common sense, populist, simple way of arguing that you know workers are exploited. So like, why, why is it important for us to criticize it? You know, and, and it's invalid, just sounds real technical, and, and who cares? Well, I care. One reason I care has to do with the ethics of the situation. I think everybody should also care about the ethics. I go back to W.K. Clifford, who wrote an essay in 1877, he died very young, uh, called The Ethics of Belief, and he argued very persuasively, in my opinion, that it's wrong always everywhere and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence he said it's not okay just to believe whatever you want you know he said that was like morally wrong the degree of one's belief should be commensurate with the degree of evidence one has for that belief and when you put that together with an invalid argument an invalid argument does not provide evidence for its conclusion Okay, so you have no more evidence for the conclusion than you did before. So you should not accept it as any reason to believe the conclusion. And if somebody is trying to persuade you and they put forward a deductive argument and they know that it's not actually valid, then they're trying to manipulate you and hoodwink you. 
They're trying to get you to say, ah, this is great evidence. I'm going to believe this, whereas I didn't before. But it's not great evidence. And just uh, politically, this, this whole post-truth ethos and Trumpism and the continual lying about everything that, that we're experiencing all the time, it's all based on people so-called believing or at least you know saying they believe the craziest things. And in our culture, unfortunately, we have a massive tolerance for people believing whatever they want totally against what Clifford is saying. So anti-vax conspiracy theories, QAnon, the election was stolen. The, the root of this is, of course, the acceptance of religious faith, and especially like the valorization of religious faith. Ah, oh, you know, I, I, I don't have evidence for it, but I, I know this in my heart. And people say, oh, well, isn't that charming? Well, it isn't. We can see a lot of the consequences of that all around us right now, and people just believing whatever the hell they want, irrespective of all evidence. And I think to some degree, the overall culture and the toleration of beliefs for which there is no evidence has led to this. And the, the populism in general, including populism on the left, plays into this problem as well, because it, it often sacrifices theoretical honesty for what just plays well and actually prioritizes like kind of argumentation that appeals to people's emotions or to their preconceived notions or superstitions would rather deal with like comfortable abstractions that uh, enough people can agree with without having to deal with like messy details that would actually cause differentiation between um, positions and between groups of people and this is like the tension i think that's even going on in Burgess's piece in some ways because he's trying to figure out how to have like a populist version of a theory of exploitation that doesn't have to deal with the debates around value theory. He doesn't want to do it. You know, he even when he was on, you know, on the podcast, he was sort of like, well, I'm not going to have the value theory debate because I don't want to get into that. Uh, partly because he's not comfortable with it, but also partly because he doesn't want that because that's like divisive and he wants to find something that is something like everyone can agree on. And so he's looking for like lowest common denominator kind of arguments that'll allow like a big tent sort of Jacobin social democratic big tent politics to succeed. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Okay, so, you know, that's why it's important to talk about what's invalid about the plain argument. But let's get into the problems with the plain argument. And some of this will be repetition from the last podcast, but it's, it's important. Cohen begins with the proposition that the laborer is the only person who creates the product, that which has value. Which, given the way Cohen defines laborer and creates, which means produces, that's true. What he doesn't deny in that starting point, which is true, is that there are things that are not persons that also create the product or produce it, non-labor inputs. So what produces products? It's not human beings' labor alone. It's human beings and machinery and materials and land. All of those together produce or, or create the products. Then the plain argument goes, the laborer receives less value than the value of what he creates. Uh-uh, not so fast. The laborer receives less value than the value of what he and the non-labor inputs, the machinery, the land, the materials, all of that create together. So then you get 
like the issue of exploitation. Does the worker contribute more than the worker receives? The worker gets less value than the value of what he and the materials, or she and the materials and the land and the machinery create. That doesn't tell us whether the part of the products that you could attribute to, this is what the, the workers labor, and it, here's what the worker did in the creation of this product, versus what the machinery did, versus what the land did, versus what the materials did. What you would have to do is get very economistic-y and attribute various portions of the value of the product to these different inputs. And then you would have to say, here is the, the workers you know wages and benefits are they less than the part of the value of the product attributable to the worker then the workers exploited are they equal or higher than the workers not exploited so you know but Cohen doesn't do this he shifts from the worker being the only person who creates the product to illicitly attributing the whole creation of the product to to workers and, you know, I mean, one can say, like Burgess does, well, the, the land is productive, but the landlord isn't. Yeah, okay, the problem is, there's a lot of problems with that. But the problem is, first of all, the concept of exploitation used by Cohen is not that you have to create and receive less than you create in order to be exploited. It's that you receive less than you contribute. And not only is it the case that the land makes a contribution to production, the owner of the land makes a contribution even though they do not produce, they do not create, they make a contribution by selling or renting the land. They do something that facilitates production. Think about uh, lenders. Okay, because that's like the, the easiest thing. You know, some people, they don't produce, they don't create, but they lend money that facilitates production. Is that a contribution? It's not creation, it's not production, but yes, it's a contribution. Could we do away with them in a different society? Certainly, but we're not talking about a different society. We're talking about here and now, have they made a contribution? Well, yes, they have. How? By lending their funds. Now, it would be exploitation if you were like Donald Trump, how does Donald Trump make his money? He stiffs his creditors. He stiffs his suppliers. He doesn't pay them back. You know, not only do they not get the interest, they don't get back part of the principal. He settles for, you know, 30 cents on the dollar. That's exploitation. It's not extraction of surplus labor. It's not creation of surplus value, but it's exploitation. He is getting more from them than he is giving back in return. So if you don't pay the landlords, you don't pay the suppliers of the materials, and the, they would be exploited. If you think like Burgess and Cohen and your mind is just focused on the physical product. If you've got a value theory like Marx, and you're talking not about participation in the production of the physical product, but you're talking about the creation of value, and your theory says that labor alone creates the value then there is no question. The lending of money has nothing to do with the creation of value. The land has nothing to do with the creation of value. You know, machinery, materials, they don't create any of the value either. So then if the worker does not get an amount, you know, in pay, 
an amount of value equal to the new value that they created in production, then yes, they are exploited. But if you don't say that, the only way you could ever assess exploitation would be to look at the contribution of all of the inputs, say here's the value of the product, here is, divvy it up among, among the various inputs, labor and the non-labor inputs, and then say, okay, has the owner of the input who sold it or rented it received an, an amount of value in return that is equal to, or is it less than, the value contributed by the input that they have provided. It's somewhat ironic, right, that Cohen is arguing that, look, we can do a much better job with uh, establishing a theory of exploitation if we get rid of value theory, just talk about physical products. But actually, it's the opposite. We can't have a successful theory of exploitation without a theory of how value is created. Um, You suggest in your paper that Cohen might not even buy the plain argument himself, that he might just be leading his readers off a cliff, trying to get them to buy into this plain argument that itself is a really shabby argument, so that down the road uh, you can knock, knock down any theory of exploitation. What we can say for sure from the article in which he puts forward this plain argument is he definitely does not endorse it. He's agnostic within the article. But what about, you know, how does Burgess respond? Uh, I mean, we saw in the podcast, I felt like he he wanted to just respond in the ways you sort of summarized, like, oh, well, David Schweikart has this argument, like, oh, well, you know, landlords don't really do anything. Or, you know, Rick Wolf has this argument, like, capitalists don't really do anything. And as you pointed out to him in the podcast, that's not really relevant. A, a good deal of this is straw man. I mean, maybe it's not straw man arguments against the kind of people that... Burgess chooses to respond to. He's dealing with, you know, libertarians who may not really know economics and just people making stupid popular arguments. But if you have like a trained neoclassical economist, they don't say anything remotely similar to what Burgess says the the other side says. So his arguments don't reflect the, the, the real thinking of the, the people who know on the other side. And so he doesn't respond at all adequately to them. Well, we are out of time. And unfortunately, we can't hit all of the points in Andrew's fantastic paper, but we will link to it. Hope you will take the time to read it, to write in with questions, and we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 